one of the themes of this book is that these so-called hillbilly hellraisers, and that's kind of a play on words, sure. but uh, were working-class Americans, uh, working-class people in general. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with writer and historian J. Blake Perkins. His book, Hillbilly Hellraisers, published by University of Illinois Press, explores the history of anti-government sentiments throughout the Ozark region of Arkansas. At its basic roots, the long story of rural resistance to federal power in the Ozarks is not all that different from many other working class experiences around the globe. J. Blake Perkins, Hillbilly Hellraisers, The Populist Ethic, Moonshiners and G-Men, and Rural Resistance on Arts and Letters. Hillbilly, first known use, 1881, often disparaging plus offensive. Defined, a person from a backwoods area. Billy, nicknamed for William. When we often think of these rural, small farmers, out, especially the mountaineers out, out in the hollers, there's this common perception that these people are automatically opposed to anything that smacks of government, right? Mm -hmm. not going to, government's not going to tell me you know what, what to do. do. Kind of thing. Right. From the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Jay Bradley Menick, and welcome to Arts and Letters, a program providing opportunities for the celebration of the arts and humanities. Today, we'll be speaking with Jay Blake Perkins. His book, Hillbilly Hellraisers, parses fact from fiction to tell the real story of the spread of rural resistance to federal power in the Ozarks. But in fact, if you look at the populist agenda, that and some of these uh, organizations that so many of these thousands of these small farmers were part of, I mean, they were calling for probably the most active, when it comes to government involvement in the economy, I mean, the most active agenda in American history at that point. Things like they were calling for the nationalization of the railroads. They were calling for progressive mm -hmm. income taxes on the rich. They had this plan drawn up, pretty sophisticated plan, uh, called a sub-treasury plan where they were going to work through the treasury department and kind of use the post office model as a sort of a, a local banking system for small farmers where they could go and get low interest loans and things like that. So it was, a, it was very, and all kinds of other things as well, but it was a very, it was a lot of government, a lot of government in, in their political agenda. Again, all intended, uh, in their minds at least, to, to shore up opportunities for for small farmers, farmers in an economy that is increasingly, including agriculture, increasingly becoming more of a kind of get big or get out. For many backcountry Ozarkers, however, the late 19th and early 20th century populist ethic invoked very different ideas and visions. While some undoubtedly supported the development plans of regional elites, many others viewed the uneven realities of businessmen's visions and motives as antithetical to their goals of a widely shared smallholder prosperity in the rural Ozarks. While most backcountry folks seconded local elites' complaints against northeastern monopolies and their favoritism in most federal policymaking, many detested just as much, if not more so, the well-to-do local elites who disproportionately wielded political and economic control in the Ozarks. Still, rural defiance against prominent members of local establishments in the Ozarks was widespread, and regional elites hoped desperately to keep a lid on such radical populist challenges to their control. Hellraiser, Word of Origin, 1882. Defined, one given to wild, bolsterous, and intemperate behavior. J. Blake Perkins and Hillbilly Hellraisers on Arts and Letters. J. Blake Perkins, Professor of History, welcome. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. This is just a fascinating book. Would you tell us a little bit about what spurred the interest in uh, this populist defiance that was happening in the Ozarks, particularly in the late 1800s and early 1900s? All right. Well, I've just always loved history since the time I was a little kid, and I'm from the region. I'm from uh, uh, northern Arkansas, and so I've always been fascinated with the local history there and just kind of growing up and as I went through high school and college and hearing different stories and a lot of them mythologized, I just uh, had an interest in all of this. And and then uh, 
you know, the, the politics of the Tea Party fascinated me as I was entering graduate school about that time. And so it just kind of evolved into a into a research project that I began to explore a lot of these uh, case studies that I deal with in the book. Right. You call them micro histories. Micro histories is the kind of the, yeah, the, the new term. Really what, what that means, micro histories, is trying to just put the microscope over a uh, an incident or an event or a group of people and just trying to leave no stone unturned and dig up as much as you can and see how that may speak to the, the broader themes of what's going on. First Tastes, Moonshiners and G-Men, September 1897. Let's talk about one of the micro histories. And in this one, you spend a lot of time on this, but it captured, didn't it? All of America's, their imagination about what was happening in this remote area in Arkansas with moonshiners and G-Men. Bruce later confessed that he was the only moonshiner who shot at the lawman. He claimed that Church had quickly bolted away and escaped when he saw the posse men emerge from the brush at the bottom of the hill, but the posse men swore that Church fired at them too as he hurried away. Sitting nearer to the charging posse men and with his back initially turned toward them, Bruce explained that he, unlike Church, had no chance to escape. Fearing for his life, he darted toward his 4060 Winchester and positioned himself behind some bushes to return fire. With bullets striking all around him, one of which hit him in the leg, Bruce shot Dodson in the head, killing him instantly, and hit Taylor in the abdomen. Taylor staggered back down the hill and out of sight before collapsing. A bullet also pierced Clay Renfro in the side, and he and Jim Curley evacuated the open hillside. In September 1897, National and regional newspapers, they report on tragic killings of two U.S. deputy marshals by moonshiners in the rugged Ozarks. What happens in right. this story? I guess we need to go back to a few months before this tragedy occurred in uh, uh, northeastern Pope County near the Van Buren and Searcy County lines. A few months earlier, a Russellville businessman named John Burris had uh, gone down to Little Rock to meet with the head of the IRS in Arkansas, and he demanded that a patrol of marshals be sent up into his home area to clean out these moonshiners. You know, they're giving the area a bad rap and uh, making us look dangerous, and we need to be cleaning this area up for economic development, things like that. And so didn't happen at the time. The IRS official basically told him, well, we don't have any money to finance an operation like that right now, but we'll, we'll, we'll deal with it when we get an opportunity. And so uh, a few months later, that happens, and they began patrolling this area, busted up several stills before this incident. In fact, they paid a visit to these federal marshals and revenuers to uh, a farmer, a local farmer in northwestern Van Buren County. His name was Harv Bruce, and he and his neighbor had only recently began uh, operating a, a distillery there. And uh, they weren't able to find any evidence at the time, but uh, they were definitely high up on their most wanted list there. And so after that first incident, that first encounter, Harv Bruce and his uh, distilling partner seemed to have joined forces with another distiller over in Pope County. And uh, that's when this violent incident occurred. According to Bruce, the shooting ceased for a few seconds and he prepared to make a run for it. But Bruce then noticed another man, S.B. Lawrence, lying beneath some bushes, his muzzle aimed straight at him. Bruce quickly wheeled his rifle around and shot, just as Lawrence blasted toward him. The posse men missed Bruce, but the moonshiner's bullet tore most of Lawrence's left arm from his body. Lawrence retreated down the hill to where fellow possumen E.P. Schoolcraft sat nursing the dying Taylor. Schoolcraft helped Lawrence remove his jacket to assess what was left of his mangled arm, and after Taylor took his last breath, they and the other two possumen scurried through the woods to a nearby farmhouse to report the incident and call for medical attention. Moonshine. 
Soon after the posse men reported the shooting, local lawmen arrived to take their statements and a doctor arrived to amputate Lawrence's maimed arm. News of the deadly affair spread like wildfire through the surrounding areas and local and federal lawmen, as well as dozens of concerned citizens and curious onlookers, blocked to the scene where the bodies of Taylor and Dodson were carried away. There was some frustration expressed on the part of the, uh, of the local judge and local authorities because Bruce, along with his moonshining comrades who had already either been arrested or turned themselves in, had been sent up to Fort Leavenworth to the federal prison because of their moonshining activities, you know, I mean, defying tax laws and so forth. So they had to get them released from, from the federal prison in order to come back to uh, Russellville to stand trial for murder. So that was a little bit of an ordeal. But yeah, I mean, this was just the, the local paper there just talked about all the hype, people coming from all around to to watch this trial there. And uh, of course, the main event was when Harv Bruce himself took the stand and and according to local accounts, really uh, won over a lot of onlookers with just his personality and, and his uh, kind of straight shooting uh, uh, remarks and, and things like that. So... Surviving posse men testified that the moonshiners fired the first shot, while Bruce and Church contended that the raiding lawmen were the first ones to discharge their weapons. In this case, Bruce and Church probably told the truth. A county sheriff's deputy, the local justice of the peace, and other witnesses testified during the trial that posseman S.B. Lawrence admitted to them in his initial statements after the shooting that he had fired the first shot into the air in hopes of stopping one of the moonshiners who was trying to run away. Several other witnesses also testified that one or more of the surviving posse men had told them that they had shot first, including a preacher who claimed that posse man Clay Renfro confessed to him at a gospel meeting in Searcy County a few weeks after the shooting that he and the other lawmen had done a bad work. Tell us about the trial. The trial ended up, uh, obviously, the authorities hoped for a first-degree murder charge, and uh, the jury returned... Uh, verdict that, that he was guilty of manslaughter so even though it, he had he had pretty much pulled the trigger uh, certainly on the one sure yeah but they were very disappointed that they didn't get him for first degree murder there but even so bruce and his his attorneys part of the uh, defense team was actually jeff davis's law firm in russellville although jeff davis was in little rock at the time let's talk about jeff davis just a little okay. bit uh, his election when was this he ran for governor in 1900 and okay. so he won in 1900 and uh, never lost another election, went on. Right. Was it three terms? Three terms. Uh, yeah, three terms as governor. He right. was uh, and then elected to uh, the U.S. Senate, and he died died in office in 1913. But anyway, uh, they uh, appealed the case, arguing self-defense that he shouldn't have gotten anything. They appealed that to the state Supreme Court, and uh, it was pretty interesting to read the uh, chief justice's ruling on that. He's, you know, I forget exactly how he put it, but that, uh, he said said something about the jury was unreasonably lenient. You have no right to be appealing for you know. So, uh, but he ended up going to federal prison. But uh, his stay was cut short because Jeff Davis uh, pardoned him, along with several other of his pardons, pretty shortly after that. So. Unbelievable story. Hellraiser, countable noun. If you describe somebody as a hellraiser. You mean that they often behave in a wild and unacceptable way, especially because they have drunk too much alcohol. What does this story have to tell us about the history and, and the reality? Yeah. I mean, there were divided opinions among these Ozarkers about whether or not you know, moonshining should be a crime, and, and if so, you know, should it be leading to this kind of controversy in our local areas? Some sided with... Uh, Benjamin F. Taylor, one of the marshals who was murdered. And after he was murdered, his son-in-law, Taylor's son-in-law, son was appointed. Right. And, and that was just to, an appointment for revenge in some it, ways. It, seemed, it seems certainly, yeah. I mean, uh, that's likely the case. But uh, anyway, some people certainly sided with them. But it seems that many, many other people saw this as, you know, undue harassment. Mm -hmm. And that uh, some of these local elites perhaps were using this federal power for their own advantage. 
You're listening to Arts and Letters. We're talking about rural resistance in the Arkansas Ozarks with historian Jay Blake Perkins. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and you're listening to Arts and Letters. Let's return to our conversation with historian Jay Blake Perkins about his book, Hillbilly Hellraisers. To tell a story, I have mindfully worked to connect local and regional history with the broader American story, to recognize change and continuity by respecting the past on its own terms and have striven to weave together the often overly compartmentalized analytical lenses of political, social, economic, and cultural history. You seem to try in here to parse reality from cliché. Right. So maybe if you talk just about how you did that, because what I found most interesting is we have our preconceptions about hillbillies, hellraisers, moonshiners, much of which was done from the press back then. What were some of the things that you found that were kind of not true or at least different from how we imagined? Right. Yeah. Uh, I think probably the biggest surprise that most readers would take away from this is, is my argument that the populist defiance of the late 1800s, early 1900s, is very different from the kinds of more right-wing types of defiance that you might find in the region today. So it's a different type of dynamics. It's a a different time. It's a different place. It's a different economy. And uh, one of the big things that really surprised me as I began to dig into this, because I'm prone to, uh, you know, stereotypes and and assumptions as well, but uh, one of the things that surprised me most was just looking at how open to government that many of these rural people were, especially small farmers, and how they actually saw an important role for government, especially in the economy, to try to level the playing field and, and uh, to help you know, small producers as opposed to allowing uh, you know, monopolies and, and elites to, to control the economy and so forth. So you know, it's a very different kind of politics than what you might find often in the region today. For many backcountry Ozarkers, however, the late 19th and early 20th century populist ethic invoked very different ideas and visions. While some undoubtedly supported the development plans of regional elites, many others viewed the uneven realities of businessmen's visions and motives as antithetical to their goals of a widely shared smallholder prosperity in the rural Ozarks. Especially surprising was the Socialist Party's popularity amongst farmers throughout the Plains states, who were notorious for their staunch conservatism. Elites in the area controlled so much. That's right. And the farmers were pretty frustrated because everything was stymied by the local elites. And so they were actually looking toward the federal government to help even the playing field. That's exactly right, yeah. You think about how farming would have worked and then marketing their crops. You know, they would have taken their corn or livestock or whatever it was they were growing and and uh, usually would have sold it to someone operating a gin or a, a grain elevator or or some kind of a some kind of a middleman there. And that was usually usually the local elite who controlled all of that, or or maybe uh, uh, merchants, uh, local merchants who they had to buy their supplies from. And so, a lot of the resentment that I found in what appear on the surface to be cases of opposition to federal government are actually cases of opposition to the local elites mm-hmm. and how they're trying to use the federal government for their own agendas. Really, the only real hope that we have for sound agriculture is to get away from so much government direction in agriculture and let the market price tell farmers what should be produced. Still, rural defiance against prominent members of local establishments in the Ozarks was widespread, and regional elites hoped desperately to keep a lid on such radical populist challenges to their control. 
The other thing that was quite interesting, and I think when we're talking about just populism, would you help us politically? Because what we think about as Democrats and Republicans has changed dramatically. Sure, sure it has. Yeah, yeah. And so the late 1800s is, a, is an important time. You know, Civil War is still on the minds of, of, of a lot of people. The Democratic Party reigns supreme in Arkansas. There are only a few pockets of Unionist Republican strongholds in the Ozarks. But so, especially by the late 1800s, by the 1880s, 1890s, it's it's definitely uh, the solid South, part of the solid Democratic South. But we have in Arkansas, uh, and as like we do in, in other southern states during that same time, this sort of revolt. It's often referred to as the agrarian revolt or the farmer's revolt against some of the conservative establishment in the Democratic Party. And, and again, a lot of it takes the form of this kind of populist movement to try to bring about a more equitable economy. And so uh, in Arkansas in 1888, a third party movement sort of took shape there called the Union Labor Party. Mm -hmm. And it came as close as ever to knocking off the, uh, especially in the governor's race, but there were also some very close congressional races and other local, local races too, but came very, very close to knocking off the democratic establishment in that election. So it's a, it's a really, uh, Exciting political time. Uh, could be a very nasty political time as well. A lot of corruption and, and violence during the period. One thing I, I kind of had trouble getting my head around, although it makes sense for the times, was that the populist, at least very interested in poor people and poor people's rights, but yet it seemed racism trumped poor it could, in some could. places. Yeah. yeah. Actually, the, the populist party that formed in Arkansas, historians have argued that it was about as liberal on the race issues as there was in the South at the time, although, again, that's in context. That said, what we also saw after that close call in 1888 was a rising wing of the Democratic Party, eventually led by Jeff Davis, that tried to embrace and pull in as much of the populist you know, economic agenda and so forth, but also brought forth a lot of uh, the rabid race baiting that defined that era And particularly with Jeff Davis. Right, particularly with Jeff Davis. But yeah, in general, this populist movement that I argue in this populist ethic, as I refer to it in the book, that sort of creates this frame of mind for these rural people long after the third party movement had come and gone, it was really a movement that demanded some parameters, right? Uh, some help from the federal government, also state government, but a level playing field, essentially, is what they were wanting in an increasingly unequal economy. I like how you said it was part Marxist, part Bible, part sure. socialism. Sure, yeah. Um, at one point, you're saying it was as close as we had ever had to a kind of full-out revolt of a, a system that just was primarily geared toward elites. Right. Silk Hatted Fellers in Their War, 1917 and 1918. You write that contrary to popular and even scholarly assumptions about tradition-bound rural folks, most small farmers and laborers were not anti-modern. In fact, most rural working people supported a forward-looking political agenda of active government that would improve the market leverage of agriculture to strengthen the negotiating position of labor and to address the growing crisis of economic inequality. Inscription. First known use, 1800. Defined, compulsory enrollment of persons especially for military service. Draft. In the U.S., conscription was first applied during the Civil War by both the North and the South. The U.S. abandoned conscription at the end of the war and didn't revive it until World War I. According to a U.S. War Department report issued in 1920, 8,732 Arkansas, or more than 15.5% of the state's total military inductees, failed to report for duty or deserted during the war. This figure stood well above the national average and did not include those who had refused to register for the draft in the first place. You write, quote, some of the most vociferous challenges to federal intervention in the Ozarks during the early 20th century involved rural working people resisting 
the U.S. Selective Service's compulsory military conscription in 1917 and 1918. What, what did you mean by that? Well, uh, part of this image, kind of part of the hillbilly image and part of this image of these rural hill people, especially in places like the Ozarks, Appalachia, back east, is that they were born fighting. In fact, Jim Webb, a pretty popular book uh, several years ago, well, he calls it the Scots-Irish culture and and how these rural people, how these cultural traits have been passed along through generation, almost inherited through their bloodlines or something, uh, that they were born fighting, right? And it's, it's easy to understand where that where those kinds of myths come from. I mean, certainly the reality is that a lot of these poor rural people have disproportionately served in the U.S. military mm-hmm. over time. But I found it to be rather surprising. Uh, one of the most surprising incidents of rural people seeming to resist federal power in the early 1900s was the defiance of the uh, military draft during World War One. Perhaps you were among the crowd that stormed the Capitol on that fateful day in 1917. Some shouting for war, some crying for peace. Inside the White House, President Woodrow Wilson conferred with advisors then signed the proclamation of war against Germany. While American soldiers were off fighting the Great War on the battlefields of Europe, federal and local officials throughout the Ozarks were engaged in battles of their own against backcountry folks who refused to have any part of what they believed was an unjust war. In the North, there were pockets of resistance, and the draft led to riots in several cities. In fact, there was general opposition to the U.S. involvement in the war, at least before April 1917, when the U.S. formally declared war. A couple of things going on. Again, this populist ethic continued. Many argued, and we had politicians arguing this as well, that the U.S. drift toward militarism and getting more and more involved militarily in the world war was a rich man's war, a poor man's fight. So I found all kinds of rhetoric about how these guns and munitions makers are making enormous profits, and that's why they're wanting, you know, Wall Street's wanting to get us into this war. And that's what it's all about. So again, part of the populist tradition that I've described earlier in the book. Another thing, and, and these things weren't mutually exclusive, they worked together, but religious convictions, perhaps surprisingly, even among many fundamentalist types of uh, Christian churches, especially out in the rural backcountry, were teaching, preaching that this was a an unjust war, an ungodly war that we have no business in and, and that, that you should not participate in it, some peace doctrine being taught and, and, and things like that. And so those two things, I think, really mixed together in addition to the uh, real-life burdens that conscription meant for many of these small family farmers. Mm-hmm. I mean, to have a young son, let's say, his early 20s, have to leave and go serve in the military, often left many of these families without their most important, you know, worker on the farm, you know, to get things done, uh, to get the crops taken care of or harvested or, you know, the, the hogs dealt with or whatever it might be. And so it was a, a real burden for many of these rural people to comply with conscription. Dissent against the war and the draft emerged primarily because military conscription meant real hardships for small farm families. So you write, it was not fair, as you said, for their young men to sacrifice valuable time, labor, and possibly their lives fighting someone else's war. With its script root, conscription means basically writing someone's name on a list. A list that, unfortunately, a lot of people usually don't want to be on. I think it becomes obvious through the history that you portray that they felt that all this was done on the backs of their young people. Young people and poor people. Yeah, Yeah. and poor people. Yeah, Yeah, I think that pretty much gets it right there. This is Arts and Letters. We're talking with J. Blake Perkins about his book, Hillbilly Hellraisers. 
We'll be back in a moment. The Dam Government's Tick Trouble, March 1922. I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and you're listening to Arts and Letters. Let's return to our conversation with historian Jay Blake Perkins about his book, Hillbill Hellraisers. Hold on a minute. I took you for a second. Tick, 14th century. In the meaning defined, of any superfamily of blood-sucking acarid arachnids. So let's talk about another micro-history a little bit. Quite interesting, the tick eradication story. Why don't you just kind of read a little of this and then we'll disentangle. I'll tell you more. I don't know if you want to hear it. Ticks attach themselves to warm-blooded vertebrates to feed and include important vectors of infectious diseases. While some smallholders raise only one or two cows for strictly subsistence purposes, mostly milk and butter, cattle represented the most valuable cash commodity for many others, even if their herds were much smaller and comprised of poorer stock than those of more prosperous cattlemen. Indeed, it was their connection to national market forces rather than their disinterest in or isolation from commercial farming activities that brought their opposition to dipping laws to a boil. Eradicate. First known use, 1532. To pull up by the roots. Although well-to-do cattlemen and agricultural experts insisted that ticks were costing the cattle industry millions of dollars each year, Backcountry farmers rarely saw any benefits from dipping their cattle. While the quarantine may have shaved a few dollars off the market price of an animal, the costs of eradication typically outweighed the benefits in their eyes. The costs and inconvenience of dipping were great enough for them that earning a few dollars less could be overlooked. Okay, so set this up for us. It's it's an odd story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah there's a lot of, you got to have a lot of context here to figure out what's going on with the ticks here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, this goes back to actually 1906. Congress, the U.S. Congress, passed a law and subsequently appropriated funds to the USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture, to start uh, this tick eradication program. And they're being lobbied to do this by typically wealthier southern cattle raisers who are trying to start raising purebred stock purebred cattle, often imported from Europe or other places, uh, because these purebred livestock are highly vulnerable to this tick fever. Mm-hmm. And so they want to eradicate the ticks so that their purebred cattle remain healthy. And they uh, talk on and on about how if we do this program and after it runs its course and we eradicate these ticks, we will have an improved livestock industry throughout the South and which all boats will be raised. All right, everybody's going to benefit from this. And so that's where this, this came from. Because at the time, with this tick fever, which was coming from the South, the federal government had created these quarantines. And so most Southern cattle were being shipped to markets in the North, and they uh, had to be quarantined in special railroad cars and, and could only be shipped up there at certain times of the year. So this was disrupting markets a little bit. For many of these people as well. And so anyway, this eradication program is designed to eliminate this problem, get rid of all these ticks. The most common form of trying to eradicate them was to have uh, local farmers drive their cattle, herd them to a, a local dipping vat, usually made out of concrete, where they would pour this arsenic solution in and make all the cattle run in and, and get this on their backs and so forth, and then run, you know, run out and then they do that so many times and it would eradicate the ticks. And so the USDA and uh, these local supporters of this program, again, expected everybody to be supportive of this. Why, why wouldn't you be? I mean, this is, this is progressive agriculture, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is going to help everybody. But it turns out that these small local farmers really hadn't been affected that much by tick fever. They weren't trying to raise purebred cattle. They had these old 
what were often called scrub stock, you know, these lower grade breeds, many of them with, you know, ancestry going way, 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 way back. And so they weren't vulnerable to this disease. And, and they resented having to go to all of this effort, spend all the labor and expense of having to round up their cattle once every two weeks was the law mm-hmm. and do this. I mean, this was, this in some cases took days to accomplish. Again, they had to do this once every two weeks, and so they resented this. And, of course, there was a flat tax passed to help pay the local match for the federal program as well, and they resented that. And so many of them didn't comply, and so some of them were fined or had their cattle confiscated. Others grudgingly went on with, you know, well, I hate doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, Mm -hmm. But others decided, well, this isn't right. I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so there was a significant amount of resistance one of the most common forms was to take dynamite and go out in the middle of the night and blow up these vats. Some farmers, as well as the powerful Huey P. Long, claimed the mandate was a waste of time and money. Opponents even blew up dipping vats with dynamite. On a cool Monday morning, March the 20th, 1922, Charles Jeffrey left his home near Jamestown, Arkansas, began his week's duties as a federal cattle tick inspector in the hills of Independence County. A prosperous owner of two farms and a blacksmith's shop, Jeffrey had been hired to inspect quarantine cattle and enforce local compliance with the U.S. Department of Agriculture's tick eradication program designed to eliminate Texas fever or babesiosis. En route to supervise a cattle dipping, Jeffrey met local farmer and fellow inspector Lee Harper on Hutchinson Mountain around 7.30 a.m. along a wooded farm road, Jeffrey was suddenly cut down by a thunderous shotgun blast. Harper, who was slightly wounded in the right arm, begged the concealed assassin to spare him and scurried to a house nearby to report the incident. The Jeffrey murder was a particularly horrific instance of a broader challenge to the federal government's tick eradication program. talk about this it's a big step from blowing up the troughs to shooting at people right why did it turn so violent the most violent incidents of resistance to this tick eradication program occurred in the aftermath of world war one so uh the early 1920s there was another high profile murder case out in georgia an inspector being killed out there roughly around the same time that this one happened in Independence County. What's going on here is that these cattle farmers are dependent on these international markets that have really been fluctuating recently. With World War I and the you know, war-torn uh, Europe, demand for all uh, American agricultural products skyrocketed, including beef. And so there was a high demand. Cattle had never brought more money than they had during World War one. And so a lot of these farmers, I've looked at local tax records and been able to chart there in Independence County, those involved here, been able to uh, chart who has how many cattle and so forth. 
They are following market trends is what they're doing. And so they're doing very well during the war. In fact, they're, in some cases, you can see them selling off other agricultural products like hogs and seemingly taking that money and reinvesting it in cattle because that's the, that's where the money is right now. And so many of them had really gone out on a limb and kind of taken a business risk here as mm-hmm. farmers to invest in cattle. But once the war ended and once Europe begins to get back on its feet, demand for American agricultural products begins to slow and cattle prices fell to below pre-war levels. And so many of these small farmers, here they are, having invested so heavily in cattle, you know, kind of left hanging there, having a tough time making ends meet. And at the same time that that occurs, there are new regulations put in place on this dipping program. So now you can't even sell your cattle at all unless Mm -hmm. you have a signed certificate from a cattle inspector that says Mm -hmm. they're tick-free. So they've stepped up the, the regs on that. And so they're really in a bind here. And uh, this desperation, unfortunately, leads to uh, major violence, which uh, really is, is what explains what's going on here in, in 1922. Even as the jailed murder suspects awaited their trial, violent resistance to cattle dipping persisted in Independence County. Three days after the murder, the federal inspector at Union Hill, located about 15 miles southeast of Jeffrey's district, reported that his own barn had been torched and burned to the ground by night riders. He also turned over a threatening notice that had been posted at a local vat by dipping opponents and several other anonymous letters warning him that his life was in danger. Popular people get things done The mountains are steep They cross our gun Think it's your nose I promise you don't Try to take a lot from us Well I promise you won't Fearing for their lives, all federal tick inspectors in the rebellious mountains south of the White River in Independence County temporarily resigned their posts and the county tick eradication supervisor suspended mandatory dipping in the area until federal marshals could arrive to quell the violence. There was a trial. There was. And what happened? They were never able to come up with the smoking gun evidence they needed to to convict anyone. There were several who were indicted, but uh, they never, never could compile the evidence to put anyone away. Moving on moments. They were the same, They're spreading like fungus, getting cold and unstrained. You take how it's spoken, make new ones instead. You think that you're woke, but it's hard in your head. We want the same thing, so you say. It's still, still a cold Just case. Mystery. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it certainly doesn't suggest any of this was good, but you can at one hand, not so much the murderous violence, but you can understand how the frustrations rose among these people who turn after turn had been handcuffed, literally and metaphorically, right. by federal government and local control. Right, right. Many of them felt like, and, and there have been studies on uh, Appalachia on the uh, famous Hatfield-McCoy feud, you know, some of the same things there, that many of them just felt like they had nowhere to turn. They had no local justice system that they could turn to to, to get any justice. And so, right. so and they took it in their own hands. Right. So where does this kind of leave us? I mean, I know that Roosevelt's New Deal came to the Ozarks and there was resistance and also a belief that that would help. Yeah. Again, again another... Perhaps surprise, especially if you have in mind that these rural Ozarkers are always opposed to anything that smacks of government, is that, from what I can tell, uh, most rural Ozarkers supported the New Deal and uh, praised 
many of these New Deal policies, the social programs, agricultural programs that came out of the New Deal, the new tax policies, tax code, especially taxing the rich and so forth. And yeah, I think the New Deal in some ways represented the uh, kind of the, the pinnacle here of this populist ethic that I've described in earlier parts of the book. I think many of them are hoping that it's finally here, right? This populist vision that we've had of, of economic democracy, a environment in which small producers like us can finally get ahead and stay ahead is finally here. An inherent fairness. Right, yeah. Uh, so there was major support. Even I, I looked at um, Searcy County, which, again, I mentioned earlier the, the few pockets of strong republicanism, of affinity uh, toward the Republican Party. Even many of them voted for Roosevelt. This cut across party lines for sure in the Ozarks. But yeah, there were high hopes, I think, for the New Deal. And there, were, there certainly were measures of the New Deal that did help many of these small farmers in the, um, the WPA and CCC programs like that, some of the agricultural programs. But, but ultimately, as I argue in the book, the New Deal continued that American political tradition of deferring to local control and most of its new resources and power. And so we see this, especially with agricultural programs, the bigger farmers with capital tend to have privilege when it comes to those agricultural programs and funds and so forth. And then I talk about perhaps the longest lasting, at least visually, presence of the New Deal was the construction of these huge hydroelectric dams and lakes. Pilot project, first one was uh, Lake Norfolk in uh, Baxter County, followed by Bull Shoals, Bears Ferry, later on Beaver Lake. But again, uh, there was a lot of uh, hope in those sold by a lot of local political elites and business elites that these are we put these dams in it's going to create a whole new economy right mm-hmm. everybody is going to benefit here and one of the big promises made was it's going to create new agricultural markets as the population grows there are going to be new markets for farmers to sell their stuff so everybody's going to win here but once those dams were built and created certainly some towns and areas did benefit in major ways the economic development generated by those, but ultimately the rural countryside didn't have much of a trickle-out effect there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they continued to leave with uh, very few opportunities, continued to leave in large numbers. And that's another big point I make in the latter part of the book is just how things change, especially as we get into the 1940s, 1950s, we're beginning to see a new Ozarks take shape. Mm-hmm. Thousands and thousands of these small farmers such limited opportunities in their communities end up leaving for places like California, Washington State, Illinois, towns or more urban areas within Arkansas or Missouri or wherever. And so some counties lost nearly half their populations as a result of this mass out-migration of these smaller, typically poor family farmers. question is where does this leave us now because I find this book so timely even though this has happened over a hundred years ago much of it that yeah. you wrote about and many of the same concerns avail themselves to our thinking about rural folks today what's your thought about what changes stays the same I think what you're getting at there is uh, these stereotypes just seem to Persist. seem to linger especially since the 2016 election, a lot of discussion about Trump country, flyover country, and, and there's still a lot of uh, stereotypes and, and uh, lib assumptions about, about these people. And, and that's one of the things I, I started working on this long before Donald Trump was elected. became the uh, Republican nominee and so forth and, and then ultimately elected. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think you're right. There are some timely things here, and I hope that it would encourage people to take a closer look at at the facts and again separate out the reality from the myths because one of the themes of this book is that these so-called hillbilly hellraiser and that's kind of a play on words sure but uh were working class americans working class people in general i I mean i started out in the introduction about kind of comparing them to 
working class people in Indonesia. So, I mean, they're, mm. they're just human beings. And so many of the myths and the stereotypes can kind of cloud our assessment of things sometimes. Mm-hmm. I really do like how you try to use not only persuasion, but facts to disinherit this mythos that probably will never go away. Oh, yeah. But attempting to say, as you said, real working people trying to do the best they could in the most part, but, and once, and thwarted again and again yeah, right. by either local folks or even folks that they hoped would help them. Right. Yeah. While the populist ethos proved flexible enough to forge a rather unspecific and vague consensus of anti-establishmentarianism in the region, populism aroused radical resistance at the grassroots, particularly in the backcountry, that often turned its indictments upon local Ozark elites who disproportionately commanded economic and political power in the region as much as it did upon outsider oppressors. Just because somebody is a hillbilly doesn't mean they fit the hillbilly stereotype. Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, you've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Leave us a comment there and let us know what you've thought about the program. Thank you to musician Joseph Fuller for the score. Thank you to Michael Fuller for his songwriting and singing. Thank you to Ryan Gregor for the voice work. A special thank you to Mary Ellen Cubitt and William Wagner for the story editing advice. Thank you to Adam Simon of Simon Sound for helping us to mix and for mastering the program. Thank you to Sticky's Rock and Roll Chicken Shack for keeping music alive and well in Arkansas. Generous funding for Arts and Letters was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you to historian J. Blake Perkins for demythologizing our stereotypical notions about federal power and populist defiance in the Ozarks. For Arts and Letters, I'm J. Bradley Minnick. Let's heed the words of J. Blake Perkins. To tell a story, I have mindfully worked to connect local and regional history with the broader American story to recognize change and continuity by respecting the past on its own terms and have striven to weave together the often overly compartmentalized analytical lenses of political, social, economic, and cultural history.